1: Hey, everybody, here is an episode from our 10-episode playlist that we're calling Offbeat History.
2: Yeah, we're adding this to our our regular publishing schedule as one kind of big drop all at the same time on uh, March 19th, and that is so that you maybe have a little bit of extra entertainment options available to you, particularly if you are self-quarantined or sheltering in place. (laughs) Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy
2: V. Wilson. And today we're doing a, a podcast on one of those people that come up in history who's kind of larger than life. I'm actually shocked that a lot of people don't know who she is, um, just because she was really like a. Uh, uh, Taste maker, as well as being the the source of much gossip and discussion in her time. Yeah, she's uh, not a
1: she's not a name that I recognized when you uh, sent the outline over. But as yeah. soon as I saw a picture. I went, oh, "Oh,
2: that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is really unique in that while many people admired her over the years for her life, which was led entirely based on her aesthetics and this idea of creating oneself, when you really start to examine her biography and look at her life story, you also find a woman who was incredibly selfish. And she was even described by close friends as megalomaniacal. Uh, so, clearly, a very flawed person. So, I think that's why it is so startling to me that she is so lauded as this amazing icon of style when the same people who do that are like, oh, yes, but she was in many ways terrible. Uh, <laughs> but even when taking into account her really irresponsible and utterly self centered behavior, it is also easy in some ways to see how she charmed European high society in the early 1900s simply by being such an outlandish creature and really something of a caricature of. Her her own design. And this very complex woman that we're talking about today is Marchesa Luisa Cassati.
1: She was born Luisa Adele Rosa Maria Amman on January 23rd, 1881, in Milan, Italy. Her parents were Alberto Amman and Lucia Bressi. The family was quite wealthy thanks to a successful cotton mill, and Alberto was granted the title of count by Italy's King Umberto I. As a child, Louisa was interested in art. She taught herself how to draw, first copying images that she had seen in print, and then applying her skill to creating portraits of her family. Uh, Louisa was considered a lot less attractive than her older sister, Francesca, and living a rather isolated life as a child of wealth, she was rather shy.
2: In April of 1894, Count Amon and his wife were traveling in Florence for business, and so they didn't have their daughters with them on the trip. And the countess, who was only 37 at the time, became quite ill suddenly, and she died, although it is still unknown what exactly caused her illness. And in the two years following Lucia's death, Alberto tried to raise his daughters, but his business really required more and more of his time, and keep in mind also he was grieving his wife at this point. Uh, he died on July eleventh, 1896, two years after his wife, leaving his then-teenage daughters with an immense fortune.
1: The girls lived with their paternal uncle, Eduardo Amon, and his wife, Fanny, for a while after their father's death. But naturally, they were restless teenagers. They were eager to engage with the modern world. And their new home was in a small community that was about 25 miles away from Milan.
2: Yeah, they were very restless. They wanted to go to the city all the time, which is something that they had done with their mother a lot, so there's that to factor in as well. Uh, and eventually, in 1900, Luisa made her debut. And soon after, on June 22nd of that same year, she married Camillo Casari Stampa di Sancino, three years her senior, and she became a Marchesa in the process. And this match was really a good one, at least on paper. Uh, what Cassati lacked in liquid wealth, he made up for in noble heritage. And while Louisa had no nobility in her family line, she had a great deal of money. So they kind of complimented each other in that regard. And the newlyweds actually went to the Paris Exposition on their honeymoon.
1: A year into their marriage, on July fifteenth, nineteen 1901, the Cassatis had a daughter, Christina, And at this point, it seemed like Louisa was on track for a fairly conventional life that would be expected for a wealthy married heiress. She had an interest in the occult and the supernatural, which were pretty popular topics at the time, but she was leading a pretty typical, though very lavish, life.
2: Yeah, we really cannot stress how rich she was. She was often touted as the richest woman in Italy, the richest woman in Europe. Some people called her the richest woman in the world during uh, her heyday. But then in 1903, Luisa met the Italian poet and playwright Gabriele D'Annunzio, and her life took on a very different course. For a little background on D'Annunzio, he was famous already at this point for his romantic exploits with actresses and socialites throughout Europe. He is sometimes credited as the inventor of fascism, and an Atlas Obscura article written about him in late 2015 described D'Annunzio as, quote, a cross between the Marquis de Sade, Aaron Burr, Ayn Rand, and Madonna. Uh, So that gives you an idea of what he may have been like as a person. Uh, D'Annunzio wrote in his novel Il Piacere in 1889, quote, "...it's necessary that the life of an intellectual be artwork with him as the subject."
1: D'Annunzio first saw the Marchesa as she rode on horseback one day during a fox hunt. He wasn't participating in this fox hunt, he was just watching... When he saw the woman who he later likened to, quote, a slender Amazon, he was immediately taken with her. And from that moment on, he made sure to attend many of the same hunting parties as the Casades did, just so he could get close to her. When he did, at first, start by flirting with her sister, he remained fixated on the Marquesa.
2: Yeah, uh, there are many theories as to whether he was just lavishing attention on her sister as a way to get Luisa's attention, or if he was just maybe playing the odds, uh, hoping either of these heiresses would be into him. But for Luisa's part, at this point, she was already growing really frustrated with the role of wife. She felt like she was confined by the expectations of it, and she was progressively less and less shy, as it seems she looked to others for social stimulation. And slowly, throughout the course of a series of hunts and events where D'Annunzio made sure he was there, she became aware of him, and he uh, was nearly 20 years older than she was. And his joie de vivre and his adventurous spirit eventually captivated her, though he was far from being an especially handsome man. But it wasn't long before Luisa and D'Annunzio began a sexual relationship.
1: So the affair that the two of them had was intense. Casati became Denunzio's muse, and Cassati's husband seemed to just ignore the whole situation. Soon, Luisa, who Denunzio had called, quote, destroyer of mediocrity in one of his book dedications, had become the toast of Europe's avant-garde set.
2: Uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, Camillo Cassati and why he seemed to be okay with ignoring this situation in a bit. Uh, but we should say that while uh, Luisa and Denunzio were sort of gallivanting around Europe, it was not as though everyone immediately accepted the pair. Uh, while mistresses were certainly common for wealthy men, for a wealthy married woman... To fairly openly pursue a romance with a man who was not her husband was still considered quite scandalous, and Luisa often found herself the subject of gossip, both whispered and in print, although it did not seem to bother her. She actually seemed to kind of like it.
1: She also started to gather a list of very high-profile friends and admirers. As her list of high-profile friends and admirers got longer and longer, Marquesa Luisa Casati continued to evolve. She constantly upped the bar on her own outlandishness to basically keep people interested in her and feed all the stories in the gossip columns. So not only was she not bothered by the gossip, she was encouraging it
2: Yeah, that goes on throughout her life. Um, And she was such an unusual character that she became almost mythical. Her extreme appearance, which we'll talk about in a bit, uh, fostered all manner of gossip and speculation that was both tied to and reaching beyond any that had circulated about her affair with Denunzio. And she seems, as Tracy just said, to have consciously nurtured the more outlandish stories that were told about her in social circles and society pages.
1: Living in the vast, luxurious homes that she shared with her husband, because they did have several homes, often left the Marquesa feeling lonely, isolated, and bored. She countered this problem by throwing really lavish balls and parties, often for charity. She was often outfitted in the most extreme and showy ensembles for these themed events.
2: And we're going to talk uh, more about how Casati started to morph into an almost entirely different person after she met Denunzio in just a moment. But first, we're going to pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year
2: throughout the years following 1903 when she first met denunzio the Marchesa changed dramatically uh, denunzio's idea of self-creation as art which we mentioned a moment ago really struck a chord with Luisa. And Casati was naturally a very striking figure. You'll remember that he saw her riding on horseback and was completely taken with her. She was six feet tall and she was very, very thin. But she actually chose to accentuate these physical traits rather than minimizing them. And she created a sort of character in the way that she chose to present herself. So her hair, which was naturally sort of a dark brown color, slowly shifted in shades to become a brighter and brighter shade of red. Uh, she powdered her skin so it would be as pale as possible, and she took on the habit of maintaining a constant smoky eye appearance by applying plenty and plenty of coal eyeliner.
1: She was really dedicated to maintaining a very heavy, dark-eyed look. Sometimes she would go so far as to glue strips of black velvet around her eyes in addition to always wearing these very heavy fake lashes. Sometimes she would have several layers of lashes on at a time, I have hard enough time with one <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> on the rare occasion that I have reason to wear eyelashes. She's even said to have taken belladonna in regular doses to try to keep her pupils dilated for the aesthetic effect, which also sounds very difficult. All of this artifice was because she wanted, in her own words, to become, quote, a living work of art, and this sentiment was very clearly in line with Denunzio's ideology as an artist.
2: Like you, I can't imagine that that much heaviness around my eyes. At times, she allegedly wore false eyelashes that were like two inches long Man. and then layered. It would feel like a chandelier, but it did make her quite striking and memorable. Well,
1: um, I remember at my wedding, my lashes were really two different Lashes, but one of them was like a half set. Mm -hmm. And even then,
2: that was a (laughs) lot of eyelash. Too much. I wonder about the strength of her eyelids. Like, they were constantly getting a workout. Um, All of these changes in her appearance. Because up to this point, she really had kind of looked like the classic, well-dressed, almost Gibson girl-esque image. Uh, But these changes did not go unnoticed by Casati's friends and acquaintances. And so as she stepped farther and farther out of her demure appearance as a wife of nobility, people actually began to speculate that there may be some occult influence that was being exerted by Denunzio that was causing this shift in her appearance and behavior because it was so dramatic.
1: When I went to find artwork to go with this episode, uh, my first thought after, oh yeah, was, (laughs) is it Halloween already? (laughs) It's always Halloween, Tracy. I know. (laughs) So, for his part, Denunzio was equally under her spell. So, he had seduced a lot of women in his time, and he would eventually move on when either his interest in them or their money ran out. But Louisa really kept his attention, in part because she just stayed really obsessed with herself and her transformation. She's more obsessed with that than she was with him. And that and their shared love of aesthetics and decadence really fueled their romance. Neither of them was tethered to the other, but they stayed involved romantically for decades.
2: Yeah, I was reading in in one account that part of the reason was that she always met him as an equal, like she never fell into the the traditional role of a woman as subservient when she was with him, and so he sort of was very intoxicated by that. In 1906, Camillo Casati, her husband, commissioned another home, this one in Rome, and Luisa was given complete control over its decor, uh, and the move, at least for part of her time to Rome... Uh, remember, she lived in many houses, facilitated Luisa meeting some new friends who were as obsessed with art as she was, including the painter and sculptor Alberto Martini and the futurist Filippo Tommaso Marinetti.
1: Through D'Annunzio, she also met with the celebrated portrait painter Giovanni Boldini. This artist was instantly fascinated with Luisa, and he wanted to paint her in his studio in Paris. So, without hesitation, she moved immediately and temporarily to France, She left her husband, her child, and many, many households behind. When Boldini's painting, which features the Marchesa clad almost entirely in black with accents of purple, accompanied by a greyhound and sort of gazing directly out from the canvas, when this was unveiled as part of a show of portraits by Boldini, it got a lot of attention.
2: And it was both praised as the apex of Boldini's work, and criticized as having a vaguely demonic air about it. Uh, And that controversial assortment of attention to the work completely delighted Luisa Casati. But her delight... Uh, Quickly turned to anger when she discovered that Boldini had denied magazines the right to print reproductions of the portrait. She really wanted that press. And after the artist and his subject bickered over the matter, primarily through a series of letters back and forth, Boldini finally consented, although he was convinced it would lead to a degradation of his reputation because of the bad prints that would be produced.
1: Meanwhile, D'Annunzio was obsessed with Venice, and that sparked Cassati's own love affair with that city. So the Marchesa decided she needed a home there, too. She had actually set the wheels in motion before this portrait trip to Paris, but it wasn't until after the painting had been shown that a lease was found that would suit her needs. In 1910,
2: Marchesa Luisa Casati moved into the Palazzo Venier de Leone, and construction on this unfinished Venice palace was likely begun in the mid 1700s. The luxurious home, which sits right on the canal, was never completed by its architect, Lorenzo Boschetti, but even unfinished, it was the perfect place for Marchesa Casati to indulge her every flamboyant whim.
1: So first, she had the structure restored and decorated, but she insisted that this restoration still retain the sense of deterioration that the building had had. She just wanted it to be structurally sound so that it would not literally deteriorate around her. She also hired a permanent gondolier who was always dressed in 18th century clothing, complete with a powdered wig.
2: Yeah, there are stories about how the the people who owned the other homes in the area were really excited initially that it was being renovated because it had gotten a little dilapidated and was something of an eyesore. And then they realized there was nothing being done on the outside. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's, it's still going to look like a mess. Um, but she loved it that way. And in setting up her new home, Luisa had her greyhounds transported to Venice, and then she purchased two cheetahs as pets as well. She would eventually start taking the cheetahs out in her gondola and walking them through Venice on jeweled leashes.
1: To complete her image in her new city, Marchesa Casati turned to the designer Mariano Fortuny. This long, lean lines and rich colors and luxurious fabrics that Fortuny is famous for made the already tall and thin Marchesa look even more extreme. So she became a really devoted customer.
2: By this point, Luisa and Camillo, who preferred Rome, were living almost entirely separate lives. Their daughter, Christina, who was nine when Luisa moved into her Venetian palace, was sent to boarding school. In effect, Luisa had completely rid herself of any of her familial obligations. And Camillo Cassati was dependent enough on his estranged wife's wealth that he really didn't make a fuss about her essentially abandoning him and her daughter. The pair did eventually legally separate, but that was several years into Luisa's carefully cultivated life on the canal in 1914, and it was another decade before they would actually be divorced. Uh, Luisa incidentally insisted that she get to keep the title of Marquesa in that divorce settlement.
1: The Marquesa, who the residents of Venice started to call La Casati, became famous for the parties that she both threw and attended. She became the ultimate party girl. She spent massive sums of money on drinks as well as opium. And at one soiree, a Russian ballet dancer named Vaslav Nanjinsky and an American dancer, being Isadora Duncan, gave an impromptu performance for the other lucky attendees who were there. That sounds amazing.
2: She also had a wax version of herself made, and at times she would do things like sit in a dimly lit room with it during her parties to see how guests would behave when they wandered in and discovered this odd duo. And this waxen doppelganger would sometimes accompany her to dress fittings, or it would be seated at the dining table as though it was a guest. And at one point, Denunzio even planned to include the wax figure in a narrative that he was writing, although it appears that that project, which was a short story, never really came to fruition, or if it did, it was lost to time.
1: A key part of her image, particularly at all these parties, was Lacassati's wardrobe. There are descriptions on top of descriptions about her dresses and her jewels and her accessories. She's said to have adopted the habit of shopping in Venice with her cheetahs, wearing nothing but an incredibly luxurious dressing gown. She's even been described at times as wearing more perfume than clothing. This was also the period of her life where she regularly patronized another one of our past podcast subjects, designer Paul Poiré.
2: Yeah, she definitely liked to draw the eye, uh, which was sometimes in a wild outfit. There's an image if you if you do a, an internet search for her, you'll find an image of her in this wonderfully bizarre looking dress that's made of light bulbs. But then she would also just kind of count on using a bit of nudity to try to get the same attention if the clothes weren't doing the trick. Uh, There's one story of her at a party where she insisted she couldn't breathe and she just cut her dress off of herself. So she definitely was into the exhibitionism. She would also have outfits made by Ballet Russe costume designer Leon Bakst as well. And increasingly, the difference between her fancy dress ensembles and her everyday clothes became kind of indiscernible. And at the same time, she felt her wardrobe had to be constantly augmented to top what had come before. So uh, she was always adding to that and the amusement park that her palace had become. She just kept wanting more and more and more of everything.
1: In addition to the dogs and the cheetahs, there were monkeys, birds, and other wild cats. She then became obsessed with snakes. She started with small snakes and eventually worked her way up to a boa constrictor she also wanted the snakes to travel with her, and she commissioned expensive boxes from jewelers so that she could carry them uh, with her when she ventured away from Venice. She's also alleged to have convinced a zoo in Rome to lend her a lion so that she could have it tethered to the throne that she kept in her home.
2: So while Casati was, by all accounts, a lover of animals, it uh, comes up over and over that she loved them, the manners, we have to say, in which she kept them were obviously not kind by today's standards. Uh, keeping primates confined in cages, taking wild cats out on leashes, making leopards pull her in a chariot, and sedating snakes so that she could wear them as jewelry are obviously all very, very problematic. Uh, in short, keeping exotic animals as pets is generally a bad idea, and especially so when they are considered fashion accessories.
1: But for all that extreme extravagance, Louisa always wanted more. So we're going to dive into some of the ways that she pursued it after we pause for another quick sponsor break.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year
2: When even her home wasn't an exciting enough space for her decadent masked balls and costume parties, Casati actually managed to get permission to use Venice's Piazza San Marco as her own private party space. She hosted a grand ball there in September 1913, which was an 18th-century-themed masquerade ball— and the Marquesa made a grand entrance by boat after the rest of the guests had arrived, heralded by trumpet and accompanied by her cheetahs.
1: Cassati also became increasingly interested in the occult while living in Venice, and she would seek out seances and other gatherings of like-minded people all through Europe. She would also invite people who seemed to have connections to the spirit world to live in her home as Venice, in Venice as guests for long periods of time.
2: Yeah, she had people that lived there for years. And perhaps in line with her complete indulgence in her own fantasy world, as the unrest of World War I began, Louisa was almost indifferent to it. She was actually in Paris on August 3, 1914, when Germany declared war on France. And the next day, in her suite at the Ritz, she rang her bell for breakfast service, which was incidentally in the afternoon for her, and she was irritated when no one came to bring her food. She allegedly ran down into the, the hotel lobby and discovered a bunch of soldiers there. And that same day, Great Britain declared war on Germany. Casati really weathered the war in relative ease. She took advantage of that time to patronize new artists and basically continue her lavish lifestyle.
1: In 1919, Casati's sister Francesca died during the Spanish flu epidemic Francesca had been the one family member that Luisa had retained a relationship with, although there's no real account of how the loss affected the Marquesa.
2: That's something that comes up over and over. There's not much recorded about her, like, emotional state at some of these times. So whether that's just because she kept it private, because it did not add to the, the exterior mystique that she was working to cultivate, or not, is unclear. She continued to travel the world, amazing, amusing, and sometimes dismaying her hosts in various measures with her outlandish attire, which sometimes included a walking stick that was almost as tall as she was, which was actually a flask from which she would serve herself absinthe. Uh, During a lengthy stay on the island of Capri, she wore only black, and she dyed her hair bright green, but then eventually darkened it black as well. And her sort of bizarre behavior and appearance uh, led to rumors spreading among the locals there in Capri that she actually slept in a coffin.
1: Though she remained her same self, the post-war world was less and less her oyster. A lot of her rich friends that she'd been partying with for years were struggling financially after World War I. They couldn't keep up with her anymore. And then to make matters worse, ready-to-wear clothing was becoming stylish, which is something we've talked about in past episodes. Ready-to-wear clothes were utter anathema to her. The custom closet of expensive garments that she was used to having became difficult to maintain when many designers making those garments were closing up shop. Her trademark white skin and red lip which she maintained started to look dated instead of glamorous. And
2: at the same time Luisa was tiring of her homes in Italy, and so she purchased the Grand Trianon in Versailles which was known as the Palais Rose because of its pink marble exterior. And just as she had done in Venice, Casati spared no expense in creating another spectacle of decor and indulgence.
1: It was in the Palais Rose at the end of June 1927, which was deep in the decade known as Aene Folles, or crazy years in France. Cassati threw a massive party called Soiree Magique. The Marquesa was costumed as the Count Cagliostro, who had been an Italian magician and occultist in the late 1700s. Cassati's ensemble for the event included a crystal sword and a suit made of silver and gold.
2: A photographer from Vogue magazine was actually on hand to capture the event, but this lavish, uh, primarily outdoor party was upstaged by the weather. When a storm rolled in as the costumed guests were conducting a parade, everyone had to make a run for it. And as that storm whipped in, Kasadi, who literally her clothes were being whipped off of her by this weather, brandished her sword to try to rally the revelers, But then she fainted, and the evening came to a rapid and unpleasant close. There were a lot of other things that happened that night that did not go well. Uh, Allegedly, one attendee even spent the night locked in a closet for having committed the sin of wearing an outfit similar to the hostess.
1: All of this lavish living, the costumes, the animals, the drinks, and the houses, uh, obviously they were expensive. Louisa soon blazed through the fortune she had inherited as a teenager, by 1930, she had also taken on massive debt alleged to be as high as $25 million in modern worth. Desperate to try to settle some of
2: those debts, Kasati traded many of her priceless pieces of art away, and she sold items from her home. She also started to borrow money from shady people to try to make up gaps in her finances, which only created worse problems. Additionally, she still couldn't manage to control her spending habits after a lifetime of just throwing money
1: around without a care. An auction was held at the Palais Rose in December 1932, and almost all of the Marquesa's personal possessions were up for grabs. The Palais Rose itself was mortgaged several months later and passed to one of Cassati's creditors.
2: Luisa initially moved into an apartment in Paris, but after just six months there... She had no permanent address in the city. She basically moved from hotel to hotel. She depended on the generosity of friends to cover her expenses. In 1938, the person who Luisa had been closest to for the longest length of time in her life, Gabrielle D'Annunzio, died. Just as with her sister, there is no record of her reaction to this uh, passing, and she did not attend his funeral.
1: Meanwhile, Camillo Cassati had remarried and settled into a quiet life. Christina Cassati had married Francis Hastings, the 16th Earl of Huntingdon, and Marquesa Casati would sometimes visit them in their home in Britain. In 1934, Hastings painted a portrait of Louisa.
2: Yeah, so she had a relationship with her daughter, but it seems like it was... To my reading, it feels almost like, um, here is my odd distant relative than, than like, the closeness that a mother and daughter would normally share, uh... And eventually, to escape her debts in France and Italy, and a reputation that had been built on a lifetime of invited gossip that then, at this point, made her basically a pariah in high society, Cassati moved permanently to Great Britain, although it's unclear exactly when this move happened.
1: By 1942, she was destitute. And by the late 1950s, Cassati was living in London in a series of small flats. She never stayed in one for very long. Over the intervening years, she had subsisted on small, regular donations of money from her friends. They wanted to keep her from having to beg, but they knew that if they gave her lump sums, she would just spend it all and then be back to asking for help.
2: The once exquisitely outfitted Marquesa was sometimes seen rummaging in trash bins for bits of velvet or lace to adorn herself. And there are numerous accounts, even from the people who loved her dearly, of her ongoing substance abuse. She could be, at turns, her most charming and delightful self, or an angry and unpredictable specter of her former glory. Her daughter, Christina, who had divorced and remarried at this point, helped her mother as she could, but then Christina died of breast cancer in 1953.
1: In her later years, Marquesa Luisa Casati was largely cut off for most of the society that had once celebrated her, she no longer corresponded. She had started believing she was telepathic. She engaged in seances with a handful of friends and acquaintances who were making up her social circle by the end of her life.
2: She died of a stroke on June 1st, 1957, at the age of 76. A friend and frequent seance participant named Sidney Farmer snuck into her home after learning that she had died and took her Pekinese dog, which was taxidermied, in a pair of false eyelashes, which he then spruced up. This was not to steal them, but to make sure that someone who knew and cared about her preserved them for her funeral.
1: Marchesa Cassati was buried five days after she died with the taxidermy dog and the false eyelashes, dressed in black and leopard, at Brompton Cemetery, one of the oldest garden cemeteries in London.
2: Among those in attendance, which was a very small number, was Emilio Basaldella, who was Cassati's gondolier
1: from Venice. Louise's Venice home was purchased in 1949 by Peggy Guggenheim. It was Guggenheim's home for 30 years. And beginning in 1951, the American socialite would open her Venice home, which was filled with art to the public. In 1980, one year after Guggenheim died, uh, it was opened to the public for good as the Guggenheim Museum, which it remains today. So, if you wish to walk in Marquesa Luisa Casati's decadent footsteps, you can still visit her former residence in Venice. Yeah, uh, as
2: I was talking about her to a number of people... Particularly over the weekend, I saw a lot of friends and several of them have traveled throughout Italy. And I was saying, oh, you know, have you been to the Guggenheim in Venice? And they would go, yes, it's amazing. And I'm like, that is where she lived. And they would go, holy Moses, <laughs> uh, because it's an impressive structure. Uh, if you have ever heard of the fashion brand Marchesa, it is named after her. Many, many designers have used Louisa Cassati as inspiration for their collections, and there has been speculation that her unique look, tall and gaunt, was a big part of what drove the fashion industry to seek out models exclusively of that body type for many years.
1: Writer Quentin Crisp described Cassati in the foreword to her biography as, quote, a picturesque ruin of a woman. But he also made a really insightful observation that goes a long way in examining how a woman who in her youth seemed set to live a secure conventional life ended up taking such a dramatically different path. Crisp wrote, quote, without question, the Marquesa Casati was an exhibitionist, but exhibitionism is a potent drug. After a short time, a dose strong enough to kill a novice no longer works.
2: And in a similar sentiment, painter and illustrator Alberto Martini, who, of course, we mentioned in the episode she knew, he was one of the many artists that she became friends with, and he actually worked as Cassati's personal painter for a time, wrote in his autobiography that the Marquesa, quote, lived partly as a slave to her dream world.
1: And finally, Jean Cocteau once wrote of Marquesa Luisa Cassati, she astonished, she did not please. So that's the Marquesa Luisa Cassati, who
2: is... A mind bender for me. She's very fascinating. It's one of those things where you kind of want to love her, but then you're like, oof, it's difficult. Uh, I think probably many people in her life felt the same way.
1: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year work. Zumo Play.